Hello and welcome. My name is Michael Kaplan and I am your host for The Ephemeral Machine, a podcast about collecting cameras. We come to you from our studio on the beautiful campus of The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. As I embark on my ninth official episode, I am so pleased that my listeners have found this podcast to be relevant and engaging. As I have mentioned before, it is vital that my focus remain consistent and germane as we proceed with our exploration of this fascinating, fulfilling, and occasionally complex field of interest. In recent months, I have become more aware of the role that technology plays in maintaining a lifeline between the members of the film photography community and the information base on which we thrive. Whether functioning as a medium of virtual exhibition and dialogue, a clearinghouse of a dynamic flow of specialized groups and pages, or an auditory discourse offering access into the processes and patterns that dictate film photography, technology has elevated our passion to a degree of unbridled intensity unmatched in recent decades. And as our collective consciousness gathers and interacts, it is imperative that those who control the flow and dissemination of content do so reasonably and accurately and ultimately reflect the needs and interests of the film photography community. The podcast, I Dream of Cameras, is such an entity. And with Jeff Greenstein and Gabe Sachs at the helm, the thoughts, observations, and perspective of the community are valued and considered to an unprecedented degree. When we return, Jeff Greenstein and Gabe Sachs, the collector as Vox Populi. And we're back. You're listening to The Ephemeral Machine, a podcast about collecting cameras. Our journey together continues to weave a colorful tapestry of collectors, aficionados, historians, and archivists. And we arrive today with two very special guests. As the celebrated hosts of the popular podcast, I Dream of Cameras, Jeff Greenstein and Gabe Sachs continue to inform and entertain the film photography community with their wit, effervescence and experience as passionate collectors and photographers, allowing the show to evolve as a reflection of the grassroots perspective of their listeners in the form of unprecedented attention to their thoughts, observations, and reactions, the pair offer a valuable commodity, a podcast that is accessible, universal, and educational. Welcome, Jeff and Gabe, to The Ephemeral Machine, and thanks for joining me for another Silver Halide session. I couldn't be more I'm, excited. We I'm are speechless. Very excited that was here. incredible. Pretty good, huh? <laughs> what nice words. I mean, well, you know, I, I had my I had my dictionary open for that one. So it makes um, it sound serious. I know. Well, you know, I I, I, I I appreciate your time. And you know, when I when I do these interviews, I want um I want people to know that I've really thought carefully about um, you know, their approach to uh their contribution to the film photography community. So um, I try to word things appropriately. So that's very uh, appreciated. Well, so I, nice. I yeah, appreciate it. Thanks. Sure. So why don't we um kind of start with um just uh, sort of a, a baseline of how photography sort of entered your lives? Um, you know, we 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 are familiar with some of it, I, I have to say, because um, you know, as listeners to the podcast, I think a lot of people are familiar 
with Jeff's uh, experience in summer camp and things like that. Um, but it's important for us to to at least get a sense of where this all started so that, um, you know, we can really build on that. So, um, Gabe, why don't you start since. Um, yeah. Sure, sure. Okay. So I grew up in um, Riverdale, New York, and my uh, I had a brother who was very into photography and I just remember so clearly going downstairs. We had this large dark room and uh, he brought me in there and he somehow magically took a piece of paper and put it in some water and it turned into a picture. And I was like, I have to know what's going on here. And I just was fascinated. He'd do it over and over again. I'd see the steps of it. And so that was really my fascination with photography. That's how it all started. My brother was into it. And my father was, um, he was an endocrinologist, but he also did photography his whole life too. And he did it when he was at Cornell. And so I was around cameras and I, I, that's how I got into it. That was really the basis of just being around it and seeing it, but not interested till years, years later. I understand. Um, well, why don't we swing over to Jeff and kind of get his, um, his initial thoughts on this and then we can move from there. Maybe I'll tell a different version of this story. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, my father was an engineer before he became a stockbroker and he was always fascinated with gadgets. And so the camera that he used to take all the pictures of us growing up was ah. this. This is the camera, a Minox C. Um, and so photography, you know, as Gabe said, photography was always in my life. Like as long as I can remember, I was the first child and I was the first grandchild. So my every move was obsessively documented by my parents. Um, and then, yes, I went off to summer camp when I was eight years old. Uh, there was a teacher there who taught a photography class. I had the same experience Gabe had. Seeing the image come to life in a developing tray was a miraculous moment for me. And I wanted to learn everything about photography I could. And so second session of summer camp, I pretended that I was allergic to horses so I could take two sessions of photography instead. And that set me off on this journey. Okay. Um, well, with, with the sort of the knowledge of photography in hand and, and the excitement and the exuberance of it, um, uh, like I said, uh, previous to our, our beginning of our conversation, I am going to accelerate this a little bit because I want to arrive at sort of camera central here. So, um, let's talk about your, um, your first cameras, um, and then kind of, migrate into this notion that um, somehow it became apparent that more of these cameras are going to be a part of your lives. <laughs> uh, either one of you. Just... Well, Gabe, go actually, ahead. Actually, I'm remembering that my Kodak um, automatic little box camera was the first one I ever had with the square bulbs on top. And I loved it. I mean, that I really, really loved and, and used that for a long time. And then my dad gave me... Um, a Yashica Electro 35 and used that uh, until that went off. And then I just sort of, you know, used it on and off, but, but sort of was excited for a bit. And then I got a can when the Canon EOS line first came out or the Canon Elon, I think that's what it was, Canon Elon. And that's when I really got into it. That's when I really, really loved it. And I started to pay attention to cameras and started to pay attention to what people were using and what of my you know, favorite photographers were using. And that's when I discovered the first real camera that I used all the time 
which was the Leica M6, which I couldn't afford, but I traded every piece of equipment I had in my house to get the body of an M6. And that was really the first camera that I used. Okay. And um, Jeff, why don't we um, head over to you for this question? Uh, back in those days, the camera I was using was a camera that had belonged to my dad. I think he got it when he was in the Navy. It was the original Practica, mm -hmm. which was an SLR, no penaprism. It was one of those SLRs where you stare down into a little postage stamp sized piece of ground glass. I used that for a while. And then when the interest really took hold, my dad some I think arranged to trade that camera with a neighbor for a Voigtlander Vito 2A, mm -hmm. which I really love. That's, a, as you know, it's a 35 millimeter folder with a great, great lens. And so that was my camera for a while, but I was kind of yearning for a rangefinder. So the first camera that I picked out myself, and we can talk about that process if you like, when I was 10 or 11 years old was an Olympus 35 RC. And that was the camera that really sort of lit the afterburner. And for the next several years, I was never without it. Okay. Let's, let's actually, let's talk about that experience because, you know, I, I mean, I can recall purchasing my first camera, which was a Minolta SRT 201. And I was thinking about it and I, I purchased it at Ritz camera in the King of Prussia mall near Philadelphia. And I bought it with um, money that I had received from my bar mitzvah. Um, it, and, and I was so excited and that feeling, that exuberance, that, that, that sense of ownership, um, talk about, um, that experience for you, Jeff, cause I, I imagine it's, it's probably similar, maybe not the well, bar mitzvah money thing. <laughs> well, first of all, there was an enormous amount of research involved. I mean, I bought every photography magazine. I got the consumer reports guides, which became like my Bible. These are really hard to come by now, but they're great reading if you can find them because they are a snapshot, literally, I guess, of exactly what the state of camera reviewing was in the 1970s. And they would compare and contrast all the different models available. And so after a lot of painstaking research, I arrived at the idea that the 35RC was the right camera to get. And I had saved all my babysitting money. Remember, I was babysitting at like 11 and 12 years old for like neighbor <laughs> kids. I don't know how they let that happen. I guess because I was big for my age. It was different but, back then. So. Yeah, yes. clearly. Yes. But I remember picking it out. I remember taking it out of the styrofoam. I mean, I saved the box, the warranty. The, I used to carry the manual around with me everywhere as if I needed to refer to it and just babied this thing, which is why I'm going to try not to do this every time we talk about a camera, Michael, but it is why it looks exactly as it did the day I bought it. Amazing. <laughs> of course. It's still in really beautiful it, shape it, it um, is. and works great. I mean, this is a great machine. The 35RC, I made a good pick. I was, I think it would have made all the difference in the world if I had chosen something bad. You know, but I happened to choose a great camera that was easy to use with a great lens. And it was my stalwart machine until I got my first SLR about three or four years later. Well, I think um, getting the right, obviously getting the right camera really uh, helped push you in the right direction. Um, let me ask both of you, you guys about the, the process of um, photographic arts kind of leading you to collecting cameras. So you're both now invested in photography as an art form, as an aesthetic. Um, what exactly w was it that made you decide that maybe more than one camera was necessary? 
And was it a, 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 a decision based on shooting or just a, a need to kind of uh, add something to your collection? That's I a- think it was, I, that's so great. It's, it was really seeing photographs and understanding that there were different formats and there were different approaches and you can get something out of different lenses and, mm-hmm. you know, people would get things out of broken lenses. And I started really paying attention to that. And then I thought, wow, I mean, so anywhere I would see a used camera after that, I would sort of pick it up at a thrift store or, you know, go to a camera shop and learn more about the lenses. And, you know, it was, I, I think what pushed me is just seeing so much amazing photography because that just pushed me deeper into, you know, photographers and and just pictures at museums. And it was, it all fascinated me. So did, um, um, so did the notion of, of a specific photographer's work correlate with maybe the acquisition of a specific camera? Sometimes definitely. Or I, or I would see, you know, you know, the old shots of New York or Gordon Parks or someone that were, you know, shooting, you know, TLRs and what that looked like. And it just, they all, everyone sort of had their own personalities. And I mm-hmm. think that really kicked me into wanting to explore other cameras. Yeah. I think that's, um, that's, I, I've, I've spoken with other um, collectors before and there is a common thread there. There is a common thread. Um, Jeff, um, over to you on, the, on that question. What exactly um, was the push from photographic arts to uh, acqu- acquiring more than one camera, do you think? I think that it, you know, I definitely was influenced by the photographer's work that I was seeing at the time. I've often mm-hmm. talked about on the podcast that that book, The Best of Life, which was the collection of all the great photojournalism from Life magazine, made a huge impact on me. And I was definitely aware to a degree of the machines that those photographers were using, but they were all impossibly out of reach to me. Like the idea of owning a Nikon F, that was, I remember very vividly, like a Nikon F was $350. There was no way I could ever afford a camera like that. I think the expansion in the early days, and I'm talking about like pre-teen years, the expansion of my camera collection was born of increasing ambition. Um, The reason that I wanted an SLR was I wanted interchangeable lenses Mm -hmm. and I wanted more shutter speeds and I wanted more film speeds. And, you know, I, I often leave this out of the narrative, but I remember my grandmother for Hanukkah one year got me a Polaroid square shooter two, which was of course, one of the uh, peel apart instant film cameras that took type 88 film, which was their square, right? That was exciting because you didn't have to deal with the lab. You could actually right. shoot and see your results right away. And that was so exciting because it meant that all the experimentation that I was doing at the time was radically accelerated because I wouldn't have to go to my basement dark room that my parents had helped me set up as a 10 year old and process the film. I could peel it and have the answer right away. So that's what really fueled the desire for new machines in the early going. It was interesting uh, that the technology would kind of uh, push you um, towards acquisition. Um, and, And I like the way that that sort of corresponds with the idea that um, you know, a particular photographer's work, as well as a technological advancement might suggest, um, you know, a certain camera could be advantageous to you. Um, so, so um, accelerating all the way to almost 
present day. <laughs> um, how quickly did the um, did, did the collections grow? Hmm. They continue to. They continue. I would to say work. it was um, it was pretty quick. I mean, it it was you know, I would say the last eight. No, okay, last ten years have been the most acquisitions, but definitely it was. Oh, I guess the whole collection now is probably was a nineteen year thing. Okay, I say All that's right. that's, that's really how it. What? Yeah, it's quite a span of time. Jeff, yeah. how about you? I got along with those three cameras for a very, very long time. The I left one out. Okay, the Olympus 35RC, the square shooter, and the Canon EF, which oh. was the SLR that I got uh, for my 15th birthday. Mm -hmm. um, and that was, those three cameras served me very, very well for a really long time. I think what lit the afterburner for me, honestly, was having a kid. My son was born in 1998, and suddenly I had the world's most interesting photographic subject, and I just was documenting. I mean, the first pictures of him as a baby, which are hanging somewhere in this house, were taken with this Minox C, um, which my father had lent me, and I brought it to the hospital, and I had it in my back pocket, and... <laughs> you know, uh, there was suddenly a baby around and then a toddler and I was just taking so many photographs. And this was coincident with something we've talked about on our podcast that in 1998, 1999, 2000, photographers were dumping their film cameras. Mm -hmm. And so all of possible. those cameras that I had yearned for right. that were impossibly out of reach when I was a teenager were suddenly dirt cheap on eBay. Like you could pick up a Nikon F with a 50 millimeter lens for $35, which seems insane to think mm -hmm. of now that a machine that, that that's that extraordinary was just that accessible. But you would see, and this is how Gabe's collection grew, I knew, you'd see at yard sales, people like saying five bucks for a Miranda. Yeah. You know, just people practically giving the stuff away because everyone was going digital. And so these things were just taking up space. Mm -hmm. And so I began just buying up all the cameras that I had dreamed of having. It's why it's kind of why our podcast has that name right. is we had both grown up like wanting all of these beautiful cameras, but being lacking the resources to get them. And suddenly there was this magical window mm -hmm. between like 2000 and 2010 or 15 when all of them were available and it was right. just like a candy store. And so that's where this collection started to grow exponentially. So, so in, interestingly it was kind of like an acceleration through a period of time and then where we are today things have a tendency to slow down simply because there's a resurgence and the prices have gone up so everybody's sort yeah. of uh their their pace has slowed down in terms of acquisition so um i guess here's the the the, the magic question is where are we at in terms of um amounts here um any ideas can you uh, venture a guess, Gabe? Uh... Yes, I think I have. <laughs> you like that? Yes, definitely. I think I have. I think I have um, about 87 working cameras. <gasps> Something I've never world. heard this number. And there's That's a fantastic. lot of there's a lot of um, non-working cameras. <laughs> there's probably another 20 or 25, but some that are beautiful, but yeah, we're going to get to that. Yeah, actually, in a little bit. So, um, Jeff, where where where's your number at? Forty five. Forty five. 
Yeah, forty-five. It those might are, have crept up by one or two in those the last are reason, couple of weeks. Reasonable amounts. Those are actually <laughs> sort of normal amounts. I think. I think a lot of people would think that's a crazy amount. Okay. I mean, seeing well, the I, room you're sitting in. I mean, I'm embarrassed. I'm a little. Don't. I have to admit, I'm a little embarrassed because <laughs> I mean, I think at last count I was at three hundred. Oh, mm. fantastic! Now I we mean, we're doing this field trip, Jeff. Yeah, it's I happening. Mean, it's, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I have a different way of approaching collection, collecting, right. and, and I think that's where my interest in creating this podcast grew because I looked at collecting different differently than I think other people do. But you know, uh, there there are there are. I mean, I, I the people that I have spoken with and kind of have communicated with, it varies. Um, this the length, the size of the collection varies, and and it's really dependent upon a lot of factors. You know, in terms of how active you are as a as a photographer, and and your right. needs for you to be able to uh, use the cameras in your collections, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. So um, let's let's start defining some things about these collections and see if we can kind of uh, focus in a little bit, maybe drill in um, in terms of are there any specific things that that you find um, to be reoccurring in the collection in terms of uh, regions or um, particular uh, brands, anything like that, uh, that kind of stand out. Um, I, I almost know what you're going to say, Gabe, but uh, let's hear it anyway. <laughs> Go for um, it. <laughs> definitely the TLRs. I mean, I'm just so addicted to them and I love them and I love how they look and even some that I can't get working. I just, I'm, I'm fascinated with them. Um, and then uh, next up would would probably be the rangefinders. Mm -hmm. I really really love the rangefinders, but and, and of those TLRs of the of the genre of camera that we're talking about, do you find yourself drawn to specific um, regions, um, uh, German, Japanese? Yeah, it would be the Roloflex. Mm -hmm. I think that okay. world is uh, one. When I got my first one at. Um, at the camera show in Pasadena, that was once amazing and now no longer. But um, I remember I was so fascinated with that camera and I shot with it every day and then just wanted to know more. People would say, oh, you should try the 3.5. You should buy the 2.8C. You should try, you know, they all sort of gave suggestions and, and that's, I just got deeper into that world. Well, uh, it's impressive because I've heard um, you talk about the the the, the Roloflexes in your collection, and um, it sounds like you've got a nice round sort of uh, approach to this whole thing. Um, Jeff, let's let's uh, throw that question to you. Um, just in terms of acquisition, is there anything specific that you're drawn to besides? I mean, obviously half frame, which we're going to talk yeah. about a little later on. Please. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, the the whole cookie half cookie debate. Yeah, I, I understand. exactly. I think in general, um, you could probably, the Venn diagram of cameras I coveted as a kid and cameras that I have now is a virtually solid circle. So that means most of what is in the collection is German and Japanese cameras from probably 
1960 to probably 1980. That's the bulk of them. Now there are some very interesting outliers because I also love cameras that don't come from the marquee countries that make cameras. My favorite all-time camera is probably an Alpo, which is of course a Swiss SLR. I have the Rectiflex, which is an Italian SLR. Like I love cameras. Now, interesting, I'm not interested in Russian stuff and I'm not particularly interested in American cameras either, except for the Polaroid. But I love the kinds of novel approaches that come from camera makers that aren't necessarily a slave to the prevailing way of doing things. And maybe that's why I like half frame. And maybe that's why I like Minoxes because right. I got a bunch of those too. Um, but in general, German and Japanese 50 to 80 is probably the, the bulk. I understand. I mean, I could, I could certainly see towards collecting um, cameras that don't fit into those um, more mainstream um, areas and the, the, the Soviet cameras that's, that is in and of itself a whole other sort of range of collecting um, because it's so massive and so broad. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, just having interviewed Vladislav Kern, you get a sense of the monumental responsibility of maintaining a collection yeah. like that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, that was where I started with Soviet cameras. But, you know, for me, I reached a point where I, I, I didn't want to take it any further and I simply spread out to other things. Um, let's, let's continue talking just a little bit about the collections themselves. And I'd like to know how you, um, how you feel like the collections evolve. Um, you know, when you, when you think about your, your collections and, uh, you think about maybe an, an acquisition that's coming up or you feel like, you know, maybe you want to look for something to add to it. What prompts you to, um, look in a specific direction and make that choice? Uh, well, for me, it's always, you know, there are these beers and cameras events out here and uh, it's just a gathering of photographers and, you know, I will see cameras that I've never used and just become fascinated with them. And I will see some of their photography or fellow friends and fellow photographers that I love their work. And then I go, oh, I want to try and find one of those cameras. And they will undoubtedly know some specific lens that is very hard to find. And the quest is on. It doesn't stop. And and do you feel like you're you're usually successful in the acquisition? No. Well, I guess it depends on how. <laughs> it depends. It does. <laughs> on on how forceful you are with your with your drive, Jeff. How about you? What is um what is it that prompts you to uh, acquire something? You know, it's you're catching me at a time where I feel like my priorities have changed somewhat. Um, I'm no longer a completist, you know, and I'm no longer particularly interested with rare exceptions in having duplicates of the same camera. You know, it used to be, I, for a time, for example, Minox, I had every Minox model. I had all of them from the original Riga all the way to like the last one they made. And at a certain point I was like, I don't need all these. I'm gonna pick the four that I shoot with the most and the four that sort of harmonized with my shooting style the most. And so I offloaded the other ones. And I've started to get, I think, a little more refined and yet diverse. Like I'd rather have 19 different cameras than eight of the same one and 10 of a different one. You know, I've started to kind of diversify. Mm -hmm. 
I get interested the same way Gabe gets interested. I read about or see someone with some exotic camera I've never heard of. This just happened to us actually at this camera shop in Whittier. I never heard of the Voigtlander Perkeo and I was like, I gotta get one. And it actually is arriving tomorrow. And we have this amazing thing now that it is rare that if that you are seized with the desire to get a camera and can't find it. Most of the time you can, and if you're willing to pay, you could have it in very short order. Yeah. The most exciting things to me, though, are the one, and I know you're going to talk about this, but the one-offs, the outliers, the chimeras, the, like, that's the thing that's most exciting. And that usually happens browsing a table at a camera show where you suddenly go, wait a minute, what is that? Yeah. That's when I get most excited. I, I, I get that. Um, you know, I, I heard you talk about the Voigtlander, and it's funny, um, I think... Like if you were to speak to everybody who was involved in camerosity, everybody owns one of those cameras. Yeah, and it's simply just because um, it seems to be the perfect uh, 120 camera. And um, you know, I'm glad you're finally getting one. So yeah. I guess you could sort of join the club. Yeah, that, it that, also was so cheap. Club. Yeah, I mean, I got it for seventy dollars. I hope it's a good one. I, but. I, that's no risk. That's less than a Holga. Yeah, it's it's, it's a great camera. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Um, okay, let's um, talk a little bit about now. I'm not sure whether this is even relevant to you guys, um, but I do ask of collectors because I, I kind of want to get a sense of this. But are there any specific display techniques that you guys use for your cameras? I mean, obviously, Jeff, you've got a shelf behind you. But um, is there anything that is uh, that you feel you you've organized or there's some way that you you feel like I mean, for instance, you know, I, I, I interviewed Anthony Rue, who lives in in Gainesville. And, right. um, you know, all of his cameras have to be packed away. Yeah, because of the humidity, um, right? Yeah, with dry packs and wrap. So if he decides he's going to use a camera. He has to find the box, unwrap it's it. An and, adventure, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, and so I'm curious, is it something that you guys leave out? Do you, do you have them displayed a certain way? Well, I have, um, uh, my dream is to, I have cabinets now. Mm -hmm. And what I really want is just open shelves. Um, and the cabinets were great when the collection was a little smaller, but now there's like, they're three deep. And it's hard to sort of sometimes want to go grab another camera. So I love the open shelf thing. And I think that's going to be sort of the next move. And I will use those small, you know, plastic risers. And mm -hmm. uh, I enjoy those. So I've picked up some of those along the way. That's a good, that's a good um, um, solution. Um, and in fact, Vlad Kern, um, sort of sent me a link to getting these square plastic glasses from Amazon. Um, and, uh, they work great for, um, for, for risers that can actually be quite expensive. Um, yeah. Jeff, what, what about you? Um, besides the, the, the shelf behind you? Well, I was really influenced. I don't know if I've ever told Gabe this. I, we were in New York shooting a Will and Grace episode. Most Will and Graces were shot in Los Angeles on a studio lot, but every once in a while we would go to New York to shoot. And there was a photographer who was a friend of one of the executive producers who invited us all back to his apartment for a reception. Beautiful apartment. And I'll never forget this. In his living room, kind of in like near the coffee table and the end table and stuff, he had this glass case with his like 
four cameras in it. One of which was the Nikon uh, 35Ti, which is probably where I got seized with the desire to get that. And it had a light in it. And it was just this beautiful kind of work of art. The yeah. display itself was this eye-catching kind of, you know, like the way pe some people have curio cabinets or bookshelves or so forth. Or, you know, they'd have little cunning sculptures on a shelf. His was his four tools that he used in his job. And that made such an impact on me at the time when I was starting to amass a collection myself. So I always wanted the cameras out. So where I'm sitting right now, Michael, is in the center of my house. Like I'm sitting at my dining room table. This behind me, the camera shelf, it's virtually every camera I own. They're out all the time. I'm aware of what I have all the time. They're dusted every week. And I'm always, I always want them so I can see them and I can pick them up on my way out the door. You know, I like them like right in my working space as opposed to having them like off in an office somewhere. Like I want it out like any tool that I can pick up and use because that's part of the other thing. All of these work and it's really important to me as I've talked about, I get haunted when I have a non-functional camera in my collection. So I like that they're all kind of out and a couple of them are loaded and they're all ready for use. Okay. Well, um, then actually this, this can lead me directly into the next question, which I'm sure Jeff is just going to love. Um, but my question is, um, have you ever actually purchased a broken camera for display purposes only with no intention of repairing it? Oh, this is oh, such a game. good one for Jeff. This is so well, You go first. This, is, this, this would is make so... Jeff crazy beans. Yes. I wow. have purchased a um, some beautiful looking Russian cameras that I have to, I, I, I can't think of the name right now, but just looked like the, the coolest cameras. And I, there was no, sure, I could have got them to work, but it was extremely expensive to get them to work and they would just be okay once I'd get them. But the actual design of them, I thought were, you know, really, really cool. Like I will get something if it's really unique and beautiful. And I found that a lot in Albuquerque when I was shooting there. Um, so yes. So it's not out of the question that you yeah. would maybe yeah. see something and acquire it. And with, with no intention of, of, of repairing it, just have it in your collection, something yes, that you can exactly. appreciate, look at. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, Jeff, I, I'm wondering about the answer to this question. <laughs> Um, I would not. I, understand. Uh, I mean, listen, let, no, you know what? Uh, let me amend that. If it were, for example, some beautiful old wooden camera, <laughs> you know, with the brass fittings, and it really is like an art object, same way you display a telescope. Right. You know, so the point is not that you're going to haul this thing out like Ansel Adams, like, you know, it's, it's a beautiful object that represents your love of photography. 100%, I would do that. If I saw a beautiful camera like that, I would do it. But I'd only do one because <laughs> a machine that does not work. You know, I was, I come from the sciences. Like my dad, I had a mid-career change, uh, you know, in college. He started as an engineer and ended up graduating with a business degree. I started with a computer science degree and ended up majoring in filmmaking and choreography. So science is integral to my nature. Machines should work. And I get annoyed and angry when they don't. And I want, like, one of the reasons I think I like mechanical cameras is you can fix them. Why can't you fix them? 
Like, why can't you? It's just a machine. Is there a spring, a sprocket? We can make one. And so it's anathema to me having a machine around that doesn't work. Um, and I have one right now. And it is on that <laughs> shelf burning a hole in my back. Like, it's hard for even me to even look at it without getting angry. <laughs> which which so, yes. camera? Which, I'm going to point it out so you have to really think about it. Okay. It is, it's this. It's the Kodak Electrospotmatic. And <laughs> it annoys me because I knew when I bought it, it was going to break. And some people wouldn't even get this camera. They would get the ES2, which is a much better version of the same camera. But I like the word electro on it. I mean, look how cool I, I, that looks. I, I don't blame you. I would buy the camera for that reason. Yeah. Because yes, it's absolutely. black. Yes. And it says electro on it. That's so right. much cooler. By the way, if all of them said electro on them and there was only one you could get that said yes, I would want the yes. <laughs> right. But, of course. <laughs> so this works. I mean, look. It's I the mean, meter. it works. The meter is the, the meter. Problem, the right? meter is yeah. beyond hope. And we have a great camera repair guy. And if he says it's beyond hope, it's really beyond hope. So <laughs> I'm not sure what to do with this. KEH was here a couple of weeks ago, and I asked them if they wanted to buy it, and they didn't want it. So now I'm stuck with it. So I, I guess I, I, I'm. I'm <laughs> <laughs> I guess I don't understand. Can't you? Can't you use it? I mean, I, I have to admit, I'm. I, I, I am like that. Um, if, if I, if I'm going to use a camera, I want it to function properly, including the yeah. meter and everything. Yeah. Um, but theoretically, I mean, you could go out with that, that Pentax. For sure. It. Yeah. But, that's the ridiculous part. Yeah. I have a plenty of cameras here. I have a Nikon F. I don't like putting the metered prism on it, even though I have it because it's not pretty. So I have a meterless Nikon F, which is just as functional as this guy but the fact that this should work and doesn't oh <laughs> we we know way too much about me gave you talk <laughs> yes, well i, I think um you know i'm gonna i'm gonna lead you guys to the next question because um i, I really want to get away from this broken camera thing now <laughs> um <laughs> Everyone's no, awkward. I'm, and I'm just kidding. I mean, honestly, you know, I, I identify with both of you and, and, you know, Gabe, I, I have purchased cameras for the exact same reason. Um, I am very much into aesthetics and design. And um, I push that quite a bit when I um, write and talk about cameras. Um, but at the same time, Jeff, I, I find it very difficult to work with a camera that isn't functioning completely the way that it should. So I kind of float in between. Yeah. Um, but let's 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 move away from there a little bit and and talk about um, the camera itself as a um, an entity. Are, are there specific cameras or models in your collection um, that represent a unique moment in the collecting process? Something where um, you know you you felt like you had reached a, a plateau or a pinnacle or or achieved something or that connected. The, the, the acquisition of the camera to something particularly important at that time in your life without getting too personal, obviously. But. Such a great question. Yeah. Um, I would say that my very first, that, that very first M6, like mm -hmm. if I think about it now, that was one that I couldn't afford and I did everything to scramble to get that camera and then used it every day. And it's sort of just really... <laughs> pushed my you know portraiture into another direction which i was very very excited about and i would 
you know, have it with me on set all the time. And I would shoot portraits of the actors and, and it just felt like an extension of me uh, in a way that, you know, the other cameras I had before, I wasn't as serious about. And I think this one really uh, uh, put me in a, position where I wanted to shoot all the time. I mean, that was really the, the key. And, the, and I think that was really important. And that sort of pushed me to, you know, seeing other cameras and, and getting involved and get more and more in photography. So. Okay. Uh, I think that's a really good answer and a great camera for the, uh, for that to be situated in your, in your memory. Um, Jeff, how about you? Is there one that stands out? <sighs> I don't think it will surprise you, Michael, if you spent any time listening to me on the podcast, that it's the Alpa 11SI. And, you know, one could probably do a deep dive into the psychology of why this camera became, I think, the single most important camera in my collection to me. Uh, when I was small and I was reading all these books and magazines, Alpa was inevitably described as an exceptional strange, quirky, irritating, hand-built, impossible, exasperating camera, uh, which was somehow even kind of beyond Leica in terms of desirability, because they were all meticulously hand-built in this watch factory in Switzerland. And there was just something really mysterious and beautiful to me about them. And I'd never seen one in real life. And I was over in London uh, directing a show for the BBC. And I went and hit all the camera shops around the British, British Museum. And I asked in every shop if they had any Alpas and everyone would laugh at me. <laughs> and then I stopped in this one shop and the guy said, you know, we just got one in. And he pulled this very battered, engraved. It was actually missing a key part of the take-up spool. There were a lot of things wrong with it, but he pulled it from under the counter and he said, we just got this. And I was like, I'd never even been in the same room with one. There are only 425 of them and only 287 in Chrome. It's interesting how I have these numbers banked, right? <laughs> uh, and I thought about it for two weeks while I was in London and then I bought it and I brought it home and I had to get it repaired even before I could shoot with it. And then when I started shooting with it, the results that I was getting were so extraordinary. And I really think that has more to do with that Kern lens mm -hmm. than anything else. That Kern macro switch R is the most magical piece of glass I've ever used. And I remember, I'm going to speed this up because I know we have limited time. No, no, that's I okay. Remember, go over. Uh, at, at the time I was first shooting with this, I was collaborating with Chuck Laurie on a pilot. Chuck is, among other things, the creator of... Big Bang Theory, Mike and Molly, Two and a Half Men, like one of the most successful comedy producers in American television. And he and I were collaborating on something. Chuck had a whole career as a musician before he became a writer. He actually wrote a top 10 hit for Deborah Harry. Um, and so he has a big collection of vintage guitars. And I was telling him about this camera and that there was this persistent flare that I would get with it sometimes, which was really annoying because it would wreck shots every once in a while. And he looked at me with a very grave expression. He said, never get that camera fixed. He said, there is something mysterious and beautiful happening with you in that machine right now. And it is like me and this old Telecaster. And it's like, I could get the pickups replaced. One of them has a hum in it but there is something happening with me in this instrument. And it's like a spell you don't want to break. And he said, you use that thing till it becomes unusable, then take it in. Mm -hmm. Because if you are getting images of this quality right now, 
something special is happening and don't, don't break the chain. And it's like what Gabe is talking about with his M6, like amazing photographs poured out of him with that camera. And the same thing happened with me and the Alpa. And maybe the mysterious way in which it came to me is part of it. Maybe there's something prayerful for me about using it. I don't know. This is what you talk about on your podcast a lot is this (laughs) bond between us and the machine. Um, but it will always be my favorite for that reason. So there you go. Long okay. answer to your short question. No, I think it's a great answer. And I love the quality of the connection that you have um, with the camera. In both you and, and, and Gabe's situations, there was something that was overwhelming that prompted you to feel as though you could express yourself in a specific way. And I think that that's really important. So um, uh, I think really good answers from both of you. Um, how do you decide, um, with more than one camera, how do you decide what camera you're going to use, um, when you go and shoot photography, um, either one, Gabe, take it. How you go, Gabe. (laughs) Um, this is a whole, um, silent debate that goes on in my head. So when I am shooting, uh, I will go and I will bring at least five cameras. And some of this is because, okay, what if one breaks? What if the battery isn't there? What if that battery is gone? What if the lens drops? What I go, I go through this whole craziness and then I take them and I'm sure I've forgotten one. I'm sure I haven't. So I will bring uh, an SLR, a rangefinder. I'll bring a TLR and I will bring you know, another two cameras, whatever, whatever happens. And sometimes I will just bring medium format and it just depends on what I'm shooting, but it takes, you know, I'm always sort of having that debate. And then, you know, Trev Lee turned me on to that Nikon FM3A and I have used this thing mm-hmm. nonstop. Like I, I actually challenge myself to only take that camera and one lens and I, and of, well, I did, of course had some in the car, but I would not use them. Um, and I took it out and shot it and it was fantastic. I just focused on that. I didn't have to think of any other camera. So it, it becomes a big, uh, a big issue with me. What to bring. That's a chore. Yeah. That's a chore. <laughs> Jeff, how about you? What is, uh, what prompts you to choose a camera when you're going out to. <laughs> I never bring more than one. And. <laughs> I don't, Gabe and I talk about this. I have one camera case and I barely use that. Um, you, it is disgraceful. I, you know, here's the thing. Part of it is horses <laughs> for courses. If I'm going for a hike, I'm probably not going to bring the Pentax 6x7. That's foolish because I probably could get some very gorgeous landscapes from some of the vistas up in my neighborhood. But chances are I'm going to bring something that's relatively totable. If I'm on my bike, it's probably going to be the Olympus XA4. It just is. It's so easy to just slip the camera in the pocket. So whereas if I'm going out and helping a friend and doing a portrait session, yeah, I will bring the Pentax. I might bring the Alpa because I know that that 50 as a portrait lens is so damn good. Um, So sometimes it's horses for courses. The other thing though is I do go through these periods of infatuation. Something is happening between me and the Wide Lux and has been for about a year. I, people who have used this camera know how just singular and extraordinary the images are. And so I go through these period, these love affairs with various cameras and the Wide Lux is ongoing. Uh, 
right now, let me see. I have a new AE1. So that's the new new girl mm-hmm. on the block. And so I've been kicking her. I'm, I'm the last person in the world to buy a Canon AE1. So I've been playing with that. <laughs> but, you know, the top row here are the things that are loaded and that I'm using the most. And so these days it's the Wide Lux. It's the Rolleiflex SL350, which is another camera with just an absolutely brilliant lens on it. And, the you know, and uh, uh, the OM-1, you know, it's, I, I go through these periods of fascination. We talk about on the podcast, shoot the camera that has dust on it. I do pay attention to which ones aren't getting the love and I load them up and shoot with them. So it's a variety of factors. Oh, sure. And, and I think, um, I think the, your, your responses are pretty common. Um, you know, for collectors, it's always, uh, what to choose. Um, yeah. and, um, my, my task at choosing a camera is ultimately more difficult than yours. Uh, you, when I listen to you guys talk about your choices, they seem very direct. Like you know exactly. Pretty much. I mean, even if Gabe is collecting cameras to put into the bag, at least he knows what five he's going to get. And uh, Jeff, you seem like you can just walk right up to the camera and grab it. And um, honestly, I could spend an hour wondering what I'm going to shoot with. And by that time, there's no more time to go out and shoot. Um, right. <laughs> um, so let's 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 talk about one more sort of collection related thing and then we're going to swing around to the podcast and if we're, we're going to go over and that's okay I, I sort of um worked in if that's all right with you guys yeah yeah of course um, and, and i almost hate to ask this question because i almost know what the answer is going to be <laughs> but i'm going to ask it anyway uh are there any specific cameras that you hope to acquire and and i guess i mean the term grail camera sort of comes up and I, I don't particularly like that term i don't know why but it seems like it kind of sets the camera on a pedestal but um anything that uh, that's out there that you um that you hope will be part of your collection at some point in the future or you wish would or definitely so there is there are actually two cameras and one i believe i haven't discussed on the podcast which is (sighs) peculiar but i'm not sure you can tell me if, if if i'm mistaken but um the Rolleiflex SL66. Oh, yeah. This is a camera that I don't know why I just, I'm drawn to uh, every time I see one. And every time I'm about to try and get one, I am told, do not get one. Like, no parts, on and on, <sighs> blah, blah, blah. I remember because Steve's camera had one in Culver City here. And uh, I wanted to, I said, oh, my gosh, what do you think? He goes, he just shook his head. Steve just said, don't do it. And uh, I'm wondering what our camera guy would say. But yeah, it's one of those things. SL66, the Rolleiflex, and then the Plowbell, Mackinac oh, or yeah. Makina, whatever that is. I just think it's, first of all, I think the old silver one is beautiful and another incredible design. And I've always wanted to use the uh, other one, the newer okay. one. And Jeff? Well, they kind of fall into a couple of categories. I mean, two principal barrels. One is just these incredibly rare exotic things that I will never find, like the Ilford Witness (laughs) or the uh, Ducati. You know, these are just cameras that I've always been fascinated by that I'll never find. There's a variant of the Petri Color 35, of all things, called the Color 35 Custom. You can't even find pictures of this on the internet, but it's a particular, what they call livery. It's got a different kind of finish than the standard color 35, which is 
you know, it was only made in Japan. It's got custom and script on the front, things like that. The Alpa 10S, which is the half frame Alpa. I love how, you know, the Leica 72. These are all things like I'm never going to find. So there's that. Uh, but, you know, I talked in the most recent episode of the podcast how my X-Pan fever has kind of gone away. Mm-hmm. I think one day, one of those is going to drop into my lap. And because I'm enjoying the wide lux so much, I think that's a camera where if I could find one with good paint, it wasn't six thousand dollars, uh, I might good go paint. for it. But yes. but the rest of the list are these weird and exotic things that I'm unlikely ever to see outside of a camera museum. And uh I think that's fine. Yeah, you know? Yeah, it's nice to have um kind of um ideas about cameras that you you want to be part of your collection and just kind of think about and sort of look at pictures of the Ducatis are beautiful cameras and um yeah i i could i could i certainly identify with that um let's let's uh swing over to the podcast because um i want to talk about the podcast in relation to um your collections and um see if uh, if we can dig into that a little bit um the first thing is, how do you um, feel like hosting the podcast affects or informs your your camera acquisition? Um, and does it, in fact? I mean, do, wow. you, do you feel like being a part of that, that environment uh, pushes you to maybe acquire something um, for whatever reason, just simply by virtue of the fact that you want it or connecting to it in some way? It definitely... Um... First of all, being a part of the community and getting feedback and hearing these people, you know, our, you know, fellow photographers talk about these cameras and their passion for them and ones that we don't know about is, is amazing. We push each other as well. And we love going on these camera adventures and going, trying to find anything. Like <laughs> We'll go to all the thrift shops, we'll go to camera stores and sort of, you know, really, you know, get ourselves psyched up to to have a new or to get a new acquisition. And, you know, occasionally there are emails uh, at like one in the morning that go back and forth. Should I, or shouldn't I, should I get this? What do you think? Um, So it's, it's definitely helped and it's actually put it at the forefront, you know, having a podcast and, and it also pushes us meeting so many other photographers on the street. We have our stickers with us and 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 when you're actually looking for film photographers there are a lot out there and there are it's way more than it has been uh in in the last you know 10 years the last few years have been people are all over the place with them so it's very exciting for us well jeff what do you um how do you feel about that uh, that same notion i mean that's beautifully expressed i mean you know i think I posted this on Instagram a little while ago. You know, this all started, Gabe and I kind of had parallel careers in the television business, but we didn't know each other that well. And it was November of 2020 when I sent him a Facebook message saying, I think we should get together and talk about vintage cameras because no one else in my life will do this with me. And And people have been doing this, by the way, for years. I've been Mm -hmm. saying you have to get together with Jeff Greenstein for years. We would hear about it. This is the funny thing. Like we both like came up in the business at roughly the same time, would cross paths occasionally. I would hear about Saxon Judah. Gabe would hear about Greenstein and Strauss. Like we were aware of each other, but never actually worked together on anything. It was very interesting. 
And then, yeah, I sent Gabe this message and we got together for a lunch at a coffee shop in Studio City. And I think it stretched into four hours. Yeah, <laughs> and it was exactly. not long after that that we hatched the idea of this podcast. And I will say, well, two, I mean, a number of wonderful things have happened. As Gabe said, we've connected to this amazing community of film photographers. Our friendship has grown and blossomed in this time, which is the thing I think I am most grateful for. I mean, Gabe is now a really close friend. And that has really happened just in the past, like, what, since November 2020? This has happened in like the, what is that? Uh, length of the pandemic, two and a half years? I can't even keep track anymore. Yeah. Um, but I also have a great enabler. A great enabler. <laughs> Absolutely. Those texts at 1130, I'm about to pull the trigger on this auction. Should I? But also, oh, he helped talk me down <laughs> on the X-Pan. Yes. He helped talk me down in a very good friend kind of way. So we compare notes. We shoot together. We obviously, we record this thing every other week. And so it's just been a great kind of, it just has nourished and, and enhanced my enjoyment of this hobby. Great. Great. And, 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 and I think that you've, you guys have answered my, my, my next question, which is basically, do you use one another as a buffer or a guide to help make those choices? So, and clearly you do. I mean, that's one of the ways that the podcast kind of is valuable to you both and that you can kind of bounce these things off each other, um, you know, personally or, or in a, in a public venue. Um, and get yeah. some kind of responses. And this actually kind of leads me to my next um, question and sort of an observation of my own about the podcast. Um, I noticed it's sort of an interesting phenomenon. Um, after listening to, to the, and all of your podcasts, uh, they're wonderful and they're energetic and they're so much fun. Um, I noticed that um, certain topics sort of have a fixed narrative like a serialized narrative that traverses several episodes <laughs> so like for instance the x-pan whole thing subject yeah. okay yeah. so it begins in one episode and then it sort of it traverses to another episode and then there's intervention from, <laughs> from you know email and then it moves to another episode where you're thinking about it and talking about it and then and then it kind of resolves in a in an episode down the line and, you know, I thought it was so interesting that you guys coming from television, that I wondered if your experience working in television maybe prompts you to think about the podcast in those terms, to have topics that have a narrative that sort of flow from one episode to the next, so that, you know, you can kind of maintain a consistent connection with that, the idea and your listeners. I love that so much. <laughs> I, I mean, it's like, really we've never even that. thought about that. I really thought about that question. Like, that's so great. It's so great because we love that. I mean, we love that people would say, it, but I really don't think that is as conscious as it may sound. Does that make sense? No, uh, it, it absolutely does. I mean, I just think it's interesting that it's, that it has become sort of integrated into. Yeah, Definitely. I, I think you are talking to two guys who are, you know, I don't want to sound pretentious in saying this, but we're professional storytellers. And I think instinctively we tend, you know, the, the show is a dialogue. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like we are characters now as much as we are human beings. We're also characters. And I think 
I think I always thought, you know, as the show grew, I always thought I really would love the show to be like Car Talk, you know, the public radio show. These two brothers own a garage in Cambridge. You call them with your car problems. You could enjoy Car Talk if you didn't know the first thing about a carburetor or a fuel injection system. Absolutely. And I do have friends and family members who could not care less about photography, who just enjoy spending time with us. And that to me is sort of the ultimate compliment, right? Is that it's just two guys, like what, what's our level of expertise? We have the level of expertise of any photography hobbyist. We try and be smart and not screw up on the show, but mostly what people I think tune in for is the camaraderie and mm-hmm. the dialogue. And as you said, Michael, these stories that unfold over episodes, our particular fixation on a camera or a format or a place that we've explored or some under-illuminated part of the hobby that we want to illuminate, we are constantly kind of unfolding a very long story mm-hmm. over the course of the podcast. And we're the two goofy guys you're stuck with who are going to take you on that journey. I, 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 exa- I see exactly what you're talking about. I mean, I think it's, it's rooted in the, the, the structure of the podcast and the way that you guys work with each other and work off of each other. And I think that's why it's so engaging. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I like the, that process and I, and I love the fact that, you know, it's, it's odd. You don't, there's no, there's no requirement for an, for instant gratification for um, resolution. So, you say, you know, um, what do you think about depth of field preview? And you sort of send it off into, you know, the world. And then based on responses from emails and things like that, that prompts more discussion and it moves right. it in another direction. And, you know, the, 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 the lineage of this thing is really interesting. And it reminded me of sitcom structure. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I know that, that, that sitcoms resolve in 22 minutes, but there are, they also have hybrids where they carry over the theme from, mm-hmm. from episode to episode. So it becomes more serialized and it just seemed to click for me. That's all. I, you know, when, when, when I took over running Will and Grace in season five, that was actually something that I talked to the network about. I said, we want to do more serialized stories that will reward viewers who stay with us for a while. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's perfectly fine that you could parachute in and enjoy any given episode. And we try to do the same thing with our show. You don't have to have heard the first 24 to enjoy the 25th one. But for people who stay tuned, for people who have heard our previous discussion of the thingy, when the thingy comes up <laughs> in a subsequent episode, when we're discussing battery adapters, their, their attention has been rewarded. And also, as I said, this goofy thing that we could never have anticipated, which is the dichotomy of our personalities and our approaches to this. And that's something I really did not know and could not have anticipated. But I think listeners tend to identify, as you just did, Michael, with a little of me and a little of Gabe in the way that they approach this we hear it from them in emails um they seem to particularly enjoy attacking me which i love (laughs) i really love that um but no yeah i i I think it's a great thing and you're you're spotlighting something if the show works i think that's one of the reasons that it works is because of that yeah the chemistry is clearly there and um you know you do see that that uh sort of in in many cases opposite sides of the photographic (laughs) spectrum to use a turn of a phrase Um, (laughs) and in and in many ways uh a similar um perspective or point of view 
Um, let's uh, address a couple more camera related things. So I'm going to swing away from the podcast for a second. Um, let's talk about uh, cameras specifically in terms of operation. And I know this was on the, the sheets that I sent you guys. Um, most difficult in terms of operation, um, ergonomically, the most frustrating to use um, one of them in your collection that you know you want to use, and it just constantly yeah. it's like a battle. So for me, and I love the shots I get out of it, but the Mimia Universal is sort of an event for me. <laughs> so pull out the lens, pull out the lens, cock the shutter. It's a whole event. And so after you do all that stuff, then you have to hold the thing steady and you have to try to focus it. And it's not smooth focus. It's not a smooth rangefinder. It's like you just get it close, close, and then it goes past it. And then you try and get it close the other way. Not the, but I'll tell you, I love the photographs. I love them. I mean, there are some pictures that I posted recently that I took with that camera years ago. And I forgot how much I love that camera, but using it is the most frustrating thing ever. But that's, that's really the one. Jeff, how about you? Uh, two come to mind. One is the Robot Royal 24. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's primarily because of those rapid cassettes that are just such a pain to load. And uh, I've had so many mishaps. I love the camera so much. I love the square format. I love the, the clockwork drive. There's so, and the camera has this solidity to it. Do you have any robots, Michael? I, I don't, I don't. Oh, they're not. so great. They're so great. They're just beautiful, chunky, gorgeous, like pieces of metal. I love it, but it's a pain to use, but Come on now. Yes. And that's awesome. <laughs> the other one that's a pain is the Alpa 11 SI. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's a pain. It's stop down metering. It's got this interlock switch that I'm constantly turning on by accident, which keeps the shutter from releasing. It's, it takes an enormous amount of pressure on the shutter release to fire it. It's, it's awful. It's, it's like wrestling every time I shoot with it, but you know, as Gabe said, it's it's a you, you get amazing images out of it. So you're like, all right, well, I guess the wrestling match is rewarded. Right. Yeah, they challenge the process, I guess. Yeah. Right. Um, right. How about how about the reverse of that? Are there any cameras that you guys have used that are simply oversimplify things to the point where, um, you know, it just seems like it's detracting from the process? It's so interesting. It's definitely the Nikon FM3A for me it's sort of almost like so easy and it takes so fewer steps than the other cameras that I think I must be doing something wrong. Like I always, that's the thought in my head. It's like, wait a minute, there's something I'm forgetting. There's definitely something I'm forgetting. Someone has to correct me. And uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that I think that's the one that's like the, uh, the simple one that you're sure you're doing something wrong, but I love it. Jeff, how about uh, you on that one? Those are the ones I get rid of. I swear. <laughs> those are the ones I get rid of. I got rid of my Canon A2E and the Canon T90 and the Nikon 35Ti, all of my autofocus cameras. That it, it, autofocus is my enemy, not just because it focuses wrong, but because it makes me too spray-y. Mm -hmm. I just am too unreasoned when taking a photograph. So 
even like the uh, Olympus XA was a little too simple. The XA4, different deal, because you have to take a moment to make sure your focus is right. But the XA was a little too fast for me. And so, um, no, I don't really have many of those left that are kind of just straight up point and shoots. I guess the closest one I have is the Roly XF35. That's the closest to a point and shoot. And that's basically a range finder and then it's all automatic. But most of the time I like a step or two (laughs) to slow me down. Oh, sure. Uh, You know, just to like keep my attention. It's why all my digital photography sucked. It's like, it just was too damn easy to just shoot, shoot, shoot and not really be thoughtful about composition and And hopefully get focused. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, in terms of let's, let's look at aesthetics now. Um, most attractive camera in your collection, the best looking one, the one that says, Hey there. (laughs) I have to say that the one that took me forever to pull the trigger, which was the, um, uh, Leica M4 black paint mm. brassed ah. all over that I just, I, I wanted this camera for years and years and years and years, found myself at B&H and pulled the trigger a week and a half later, but actually they had still, they still had it. But yes, I think that's the one that I really love. Just in terms of the look of it, Gabe? The, the look of it and that fe- yeah, the feel of it. I think mm-hmm. that's, that's what I really like. Okay. Jeff, Jeff. Uh, holding something. Ah. Well, there you go. Beautiful. Yeah, and I can. I mean, yeah. I mean, look at that. It's a beautiful camera. Yeah, yeah. That, that logo, that yep. stupid name, but that mm-hmm. great logo. <laughs> uh, also, the Roly, the Roloflex SL350. I think you it love is that sort of that spotmatic ideal of like. I mean, again. <sighs> yeah pretty i mean it's like it's like the spotmatic it actually was designed as sort of a knockoff of the spotmatic and you can see the design influence but just the 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 like completely like smooth uncluttered design and that unbelievably sexy r in the roloflex logo is just (laughs) to die for so those are the oh wait wait and then this terrible camera come on oh Oh, that's that's the bantam that's my favorite one yeah that's a gorgeous camera it's gorgeous, not a good camera. No, no I'd, I'd film format, right? Yeah, eight twenty eight. It's yeah. the only eight twenty eight camera I've got. But so, oh. yeah, look at that. I mean, yeah. How so can it not be pretty? It's a it stunner. It really pictures? is. It's gorgeous. It's everything. You put a scope R lens in it, and it would be the perfect camera. But this this lens is just not. I don't love it. Some people mm-hmm. do. Um, but yeah, those are the pretties. Okay, let's talk about the the ones. I wouldn't say we're embarrassed to own, but let's say oh. the ones that <laughs> the ones that are the least attractive in our collection. Oh. Um, that you just you look at it and you think, I just don't understand the aesthetics of this camera. Or uh, oh god, that's a good question, Gabe. What's yours? That's He's so looking the ugly. I'm looking at it. Looking Personally, I mean, I, on a personal level, I think every camera I have is gorgeous, but that's just me. Yeah. Well, you know, the Canon Shot Multi-Tally, which is actually not here. Um, that's how little I can stand to look at it. It's an autofocus plastic bodied half frame or full frame point and shoot. It's one of those like extruded looking like black plastic granny's pocketbook kind of cameras with mm-hmm. no character whatsoever. 
So that's pretty hideous. I would actually argue that the wide Lux is hideous. Mm -hmm. It's terrible looking, takes amazing pictures, but it's just really quite ugly. I think some people would probably argue with me on that. Um, uh, I yeah, think that, I think I, I, this is this is the only one I think of that I really is the Porst, you know. The oh yeah, mm-hmm. I have a, a Porst that is you not have very, that? not very attractive. Um, yes, I picked Never that up in that. Albuquerque for I think six dollars or something, <laughs> and then the other the uh, uh, no, I got. I mean, I have the Pentacon six with a giant giant lens like a 180 that just looks ridiculous but you know not ugly okay all right i think those are fair answers um all right um well gentlemen i have i, I do have one more question and, and it's sort of a surprise and and um i i kind of i just couldn't decide whether i was going to go through with this or not but do i decided it. to oh, always go um so seeing how's you, how you guys are are part of the uh, are in the business um, I decided that to, to lead us to the last question, um, I, I actually wrote a, a little bit of a, of a script here. Um, it's just, uh, it, I'm the only person in it. Um, it's sort of a table read of a, uh, you know, one, it's a one pager. So it's about a minute okay. of screen time, uh, a minute and maybe a page and an eighth. Okay. Um, so I'm going to read this. Okay. And then, um, and this sort of will lead us right into the last question. Oh, okay. wait. So bear with me because I haven't, <clears throat> I haven't performed in a while. We're in. Okay. Oh, and it's, um, it might be a little prosy and, um, okay. uh, there is some, there, there's some, uh, um, um, camera shots in there. So it's sort of a hybrid. There's a little cat. There's a little shooting script in here as well. Fantastic. Okay. Exterior barren landscape day. The scene is desolate as far as the eye can see. The earth, dry and cracked, is vast and seemingly endless. The blistering bright sky is empty except for several dots which quickly transform into a circle of ravenous birds laying claim to their prey. A figure enters the extreme foreground from off screen, almost obscuring the frame. It steps forward with some difficulty. There is a crunching sound which is unidentifiable. Cut to reverse shot. The desolation is shattered by the figure. It is a man. The man's name is Gabe, but everybody calls him Dave. He wears <laughs> jeans, sneakers, and a tattered t-shirt. Slung over his left shoulder are several camera bags. It is unclear how many there are, but at least three. Dave cradles a dark object in his hands holding it as though one would hold a kitty or a bunny. He stumbles forward and the mysterious crunching sound returns. Cut to ECU. Uh-oh. Sneakers <laughs> stepping forward. That's extreme close up. Uh, you guys know that. Uh, the source of the mysterious <laughs> crunching sound is revealed. Empty carcasses of spent film cartridges littered about are crushed under each of Dave's tentative steps. Cut two. <laughs> Dave continues to stumble forward. He pauses next to a small tree, the only evidence of growth for miles. The tree is sparse with no leaves, and the spindly branches cling haphazardly to flapping rolls of 120 backing paper. A dry breeze whips a few of the backing paper rolls from the grasp of the branches. They fly off to join the desolation. 
cut to see you close up pile of empty film cartridges on the ground something is obscured by the film cartridges the wind pushes the cartridges aside revealing a tattered newspaper and its title the film photography news the headline is clear and abrupt nick's picks boy chicks below the headline <laughs> i knew you'd get that below the headline <laughs> the main story is readable ccr gang confirms it no more film stock and we should know cut to dave still holding the dark object looking down at his hands cut to the close-up the dark object dave is carefully creating cradling a black and tan 35 millimeter camera the front of the camera reads nikon next to the name of the camera is a drawing of a small dog nobody <laughs> knows why still in close still in close up trembling hands turn the camera over and open the back revealing an empty film chamber dave drops the multiple camera bags to the ground and then to his knees he looks up to the sky raises his arms and still holding the weird dog camera yells no <laughs> cut to black roll credits so that's it. Thank you. Fantastic. And, uh, uh, the title of the movie oh. is Mad Dave Lamography Road. <laughs> um, so well so that's, that's the last scene of this movie that I, that I just presented to you. So the question is, the question is, if there were no more film stock to shoot, would you still collect cameras? Oh, what? Uh, I really would. I would. I would just find something else about them. It's so frustrating, like just to even think of that. But I would have to. I just think it's so much a part of my life for so many years that I think that I would, you know. So, so I'm, I'm going to explore that just a little bit more, but I want to hear what, what Jeff has to say as well. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I might have fewer. I don't know what I would do with them, but, you know, one of the things you talk about, Michael, and which is sort of implicit in a lot of the narratives that guests have unfolded on your podcast is the idea that a collection is a story about photography and a story about yourself. And this collection behind me tells a story about my development as a photographer, my fascination with machines, and also kind of who I am as a person. And it, the, if there were no more film, that story is still a story and, and a good one. And so I don't think that I could completely let go of every beat of that story. Mm -hmm. Maybe a few of them, mm -hmm. maybe a few would seem more superfluous, but no, I think I would have to the same way that the collection of books that surrounds me, oh, sure. they're actually a lot, you know, uh, I don't read every book every day, mm -hmm. but they tell a similar sort of story about my biography. So, yeah, I guess I would. And, and Gabe, is it sort of a similar, I mean, are you feeling um, like just the, the ownership and the acquisition of the cameras as part of your collection is in and of itself an entity that's something that you can enjoy and, and process? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, even if there was no film, I would still take them and, you know, click those shutters over and over mm -hmm. and over again. Absolutely. 
Okay. Well, uh, I mean, it, it's it's a tough question, and I, and I mean, I'm not trying to to you know present a uh, a dystopian future, even though I, I did in my. <laughs> I mean, so in that future, you know, uh, refrigerators are full of food instead of film. But yeah, um, you know, it's something that that I think everybody is kind of looking at, and and they're not wondering if there's not going to be any film, but the cost of film is rising and things mm. like that. And that isn't right. something that I necessarily um, speak about, but it does kind of help me to look at the collection as something that exists in and of itself as right. representative representative of a historical base of a design base and yeah. uh, i think it's important that that um you know we we acknowledge that which i think you guys yeah. have both done um very well um well i think that's pretty much it um i you know we used up all my questions um you know Hooray. i got to i got to That's read awesome. my my screenplay there unbelievably yes, great michael well, i appreciate that. um you know it's um it was an undertaking uh, <laughs> you know, it's a it's a first draft and there'll be definitely blue pages there along the way <laughs> um gentlemen this has been um a joy uh a pleasure speaking to both of you um, I think your insight and your perspective is so valuable. Um, I think the podcast is an important um, addition to the canon of film photography podcasts and and everything that supports the film community. I, I said that it was unprecedented how much focus and attention you give to your listeners and their observations and reactions and you know, I can only say that it just works and works and works. So, so um, appreciated. Thank thanks. you so much. Thank well, you for inviting us to be part of your show. We love it. We love the part yeah. of the waterfront that you are covering. I think it's so interesting and specific. And I, as I said, I love the, the idea that you constantly return to is the stories that our collections tell. Yeah. Um, I think that's really beautiful and profound and it's rare because I think in general, people think of it as, you know, nerdy and, and <laughs> boys in their man caves mm -hmm. and stuff. And I, I like the idea that you're constantly bringing to this. There's a narrative underpinning all this. So anyway, thanks for having us. Well, thank you guys. I appreciate your time and um, thanks for being here. And we will be back with more from the ephemeral machine. back you're listening to the ephemeral machine a podcast about collecting cameras i feel so fortunate to have had the opportunity to chat with jeff and gabe and i so appreciate their professionalism and grace their stories observations and perspective on camera collecting was refreshingly candid and i was happy to have reached some clarity on their individual and combined roles as co-hosts of the popular podcast as usual I thought carefully about the title for this episode. I felt that it was important to distinguish the formal connection between the structural components of the I Dream of Cameras podcast, the listener, and Jeff and Gabe's dynamic and accessible interaction. By foregrounding the listener's intervention and allowing it to guide the episode's narrative, the quote, voice of the people, unquote, fuels the trajectory of the podcast transforming it into a holistic and valuable asset to our community. And with each episode, we flourish and thrive. 
Thank you so much for joining me for this Silver Halide session. My name is Michael Kaplan, and I will see you on the next episode of The Ephemeral Machine. Thank you.